2: This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The President and First Lady have COVID-19, which is, of course, of immense consequence for the President, his family, and the nation. CBS News Radio White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy is a longtime Washington correspondent, but not since President Reagan was shot have we covered anything as important for the health of a president and, therefore, in many ways, the health of a nation. Stephen, good to have you with us. How are you?
1: It's good to be with you, Gil.
2: Some people say this is a shock, but not a surprise. Many thought the president's ambivalence about masks, physical distancing, were tactics to play down the virus, as he put it to Bob Woodward, to prevent panic. But it seems his feelings about all this were probably real.
1: And, you know, it's interesting because the White House has been relying on rapid testing as pretty much its only line of defense. Mask wearing is not ubiquitous within the West Wing. There's no social distancing. And the flaws of relying on that strategy are now apparent. You know, Hope Hicks, the president's most loyal and most trusted senior aide, received a negative test on Wednesday morning. That was before she flew in the close confines of the Marine One helicopter and then on Air Force One with the president to Minnesota on Wednesday. Later that day, she began developing symptoms, and only then did she test positive. So, this idea that it's okay to not wear a mask and it's okay to not social distance because everybody's tested and everybody's tested negative, the flaws of that strategy are now clear
2: and chris christie says even during the debate prep nobody was wearing masks and this brings up a larger question because we're not just talking about hope hicks the president the first lady the president has been close to various members of the administration his campaign some members of the cabinet such as wilbur ross are quite on in years therefore more susceptible to more serious cases of covid Uh um, how much fear is there at the White House? Well,
1: I think there's a tremendous amount of fear at this point. I mean, look, you have the president of the United States and the first lady of the United States who have come down with the coronavirus. I mean, this is essentially the worst case scenario. And now the, the, the fear is that the virus is spreading across the entire senior staff. So uh, there are steps we, we understand uh, that were being taken on Friday morning to essentially uh, isolate. And quarantine, and keep people separate, and uh, maybe uh, in, in, you know enhance telework, and see to it that fewer people are, are around. Uh, The question going forward with less than a month before the election is how does this affect the campaign? The president was scheduled to uh, undertake a, a litany of different stops across the western U.S. He was going to overnight in Las Vegas. He was going to go to Los Angeles. He was going to Arizona. All of that for the foreseeable future has been scrapped. And obviously, uh, it calls into question the president's strategy to prevent the spread in his own office, never mind prevent the spread of coronavirus across the country.
2: And that brings up the question of credibility on the virus. Americans seem fairly locked in on their choices. This election will probably be more about turnout than swing voters. But going forward, whether we're talking about the next four months or the next four years, there's now the question of whether the nation's leader is going to be believed on a major crisis facing the nation.
1: Well, and credibility, I think, is a significant point. I mean, you know, th- This president seems to uh, have sought out some degree of deniability for everything he has said about this. He has said uh, it's not as serious as the flu, but then he's also said it's more serious than the flu. He has said everyone should wear a mask, but then he said you don't need to wear a mask. Yeah, He's made fun of people who wear masks. In fact, his opponent for wearing a mask. Uh, and, and so when it comes to emphatic statements that the president might make about how we're dealing with this as a country, it's hard to know when the president is telling the truth because he often wants to have both sides of every argument.
2: And this brings up credibility in terms of his health condition as well. And this isn't just because of the track record of President Trump on Being open with Americans about issues, even in the case of uh, President Reagan, when he was shot, we were to find out many months later that he was in much more serious condition than we were initially told. So even just dealing with the day to day, how is the president actually doing there are, again, credibility questions here, which are important.
1: There is always a need for the American people to be fully informed on the health of their president. It implicates national security. It implicates America's position and standing in the world. And at a time like this, where there's tremendous uncertainty about the health of the president, direct and accurate and regular updates from the White House to the American people are absolutely essential
2: so we have remaining debates now, of course, the President can do those from the White House gives him one advantage he could even do them from the oval, a heck of a background, but in terms of energy, and then of course, depending on whether he remains you know with just a minor reaction to covid. And all, or goes through something major, I mean, this could throw the rest of the debates into a into a cocked hat. Well,
1: there's no question about it. I mean, you've got the fact that the next debate, which is on October 15th, is a, is a town hall debate. Already there were preparations that the Commission on Presidential Debates were undertaking to ensure social distancing in the debate hall and testing in the debate hall. But uh, we saw the president's aides and family members walk into the debate hall in Cleveland without wearing masks. Uh, The Republican committee chairwoman, Romney McDaniel, wound up testing positive shortly thereafter. And so there are really significant questions about the the, the fact that the president's team seems to be uh, infected with COVID and the idea that they would travel en masse to various cities and interact with uh, uh, members of the public, and never mind the Biden campaign. Uh, this has really thrown a monkey wrench into this whole process.
2: The good news for the president is even at his age and physical condition, more than 90% of people are going to recover. Boris Johnson has been through this in the UK. Bolsonaro in Brazil have had COVID and recovered. So the questions are, I guess, is he going to get through this okay the odds are with him but even then as we've covered with many of the doctors who have appeared on these broadcasts even if you recover sometimes there are things left over like inflammation of the heart and other things that may not leave you in the same physical condition. so short term there are problems that's the campaign long term there are problems that he will possibly have to face
1: and the president has acknowledged the, the 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 seriousness of this disease he's spoken of it in fact on fox news uh, early in this when we first heard uh, that 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 his his aide hope hicks had tested positive he he spoke of what a tough situation this is and obviously the specter of his own case was hanging over his head when he said that Um, And so uh, it really does raise questions about uh, what this will mean to the president's daily activities and his ability to campaign going forward. And obviously, uh, there are great questions about uh, what treatments the president may be given by his military doctors. And so uh, that's why it's important for the American people to be fully and regularly informed.
2: There are so many questions here, and we only have a little time, but one of of the major questions, of course, going forward is, will there be a move to push the election to a different date? The president talked about that at one point. Both party leaders said, no, absolutely not, but I expect that's a buzz that we're going to be hearing.
1: It might be something the president might again suggest. He suggested it in a tweet earlier this year that uh, perhaps because of the coronavirus that the the election should be moved. Uh, I don't see it happening. It's it's federal law that the the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November is the day that uh, in the states the electors are chosen by the voters, and I don't see that changing.
2: Yeah, I don't see that changing either, but does go again, the president has been working hard even you know long before this to discredit parts of the election especially if he were to lose and anything that calls the fairness of the election into question is going to be a major thing for his supporters.
1: There's no question about that. I mean, the key question now is, you know, what are the president's attempts at outreach from the White House? Uh, you know, he, uh, as as we're speaking, Gill, it's early in this, the president was said to be developing mild symptoms, but he also, according to aides, was interested in communicating with the country. So will he uh, regularly tweet? Will he appear uh, on television to the degree that that's possible, to the degree that the television networks feel comfortable being in the same room with him, to to uh, videotape him. So these are these are critical questions that uh, will affect the, the politics and of all this. Um, and, and they're really at the moment that we're speaking, there are no answers.
2: CBS News Radio White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. Stephen, thank you. Thanks, Gil. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. COVID-19 has now killed 200,000 Americans. We are the worst hit country with just 4% of the world population, but quintupled that percentage of worldwide deaths. The virus continues to ebb and flow across the nation, easing here but surging there and showing no signs of really going anywhere. What we have learned about Treating it, who gets it, and maybe how to make a vaccine that will stop it is the subject for today. As a new kind of coronavirus, we're learning from it all the time, hoping that the virus itself will give us clues as to how to kill this thing. Dr. Mel Herbert talks to people worldwide who are dealing with it, but especially in the emergency rooms around the nation. He owns MRAP, EMRAP, E M R A P, which enables ER doctors to share information on things like what they are finding useful for treating COVID 19, since they are, in fact, the first responders. Mel, good to have you back. How are you doing?
3: It's great to be back. I'm doing as well as everybody else is doing. We're living in this bizarre 2020 reality, but um, we get by day by day.
2: Yeah, we do, or at least we do our best. We seem to be learning new things about this virus all the time. Has it shown any
3: signs of mutating, changing, anything? Yeah, it is already mutated. um, I don't want to say substantially, but it is under viruses like this undergo constant mutation. The good news for these types of pandemics is that the virus tends to mutate towards being more infectious but less lethal. That's usually what happens. That's the experience of sort of pandemics over time. It's over months and years. The virus wants to live, even though we're not sure viruses are actually alive in any normal sense. So if they can become more infectious, they can jump from you to me to anybody else very easily. That's a good thing. But if they're too lethal, if they kill too many of the hosts, that's not good for them. So generally over time, uh, they get more infectious and less lethal. So we've seen a more infectious form of the virus sort of taking over. We don't yet know if it's a little less lethal. Um, It seems to be that the mortality in the US is going down a little bit. Is that because the virus has mutated so it's not as bad? Or is it just because more younger people are getting infected as they're going back out into the community? We don't know. And unfortunately, you don't know the answers to a lot of these things for months to years. So it's mostly speculation right now. But it is undergoing these small changes.
2: Yeah, it is one of the problems with a disease that a large number of people will recover from in trying to figure out whether it's a particular medication or a particular treatment or anything that has helped people or it's just, well, they're part of the 95% or so who would have gotten better anyhow. You're dealing with like a a small margin for figuring out what's going on.
3: Yeah, it's... um, We... It's the frustrating part of this. We won't know exactly what's happening um, for years to come. And my biggest concern, though, is... What about the morbidity? What are the other things that are happening? So we're seeing in young people, and particularly in adults, as colleges go back and playing sports and they're doing lots of testing and checking their athletes, is that it is spreading through colleges, it's spreading through the athletes, as we know would happen. We just knew this would happen. Um, but you try and sort of uh, go back and uh, go back to your sports, go back to school, and then follow it very closely and crank it down and, and social distance again if it gets too out of control. But in a couple of the sports programs, they've found this thing where there's inflammation of the heart in a lot of the athletes and about one in 15 of the athletes that get it, they appear to have heart inflammation. Now, that could be just because we have tests that are really good for looking for that inflammation. And we don't know if they're going to have long-term effects. But it makes me worried about the fact we focus so much on how lethal the disease is. We're not even sure about all of these other things that could happen to you. Will they go away or will they stay? Will you always have a little bit of lung scarring? Will you always have a little bit of scarring to the heart? Again, frustrating. We don't know. And that's why I think it would be better if we can have as few people get as infected as possible while we try and find new therapies, while we get the vaccine out there. And so I really implored people, don't believe that this is a free pass because you're relatively young and healthy, that you're less likely to die. You might still have some significant complications from this virus. So you really don't want to get it if you can avoid it.
2: You talk with emergency department physicians, nurses, nurses all the time. So let's talk about treatment, because you talked to these first responders in this. And what happens when somebody comes into an ER going, "I, I think I might have COVID, or showing signs? Because as we've learned in the past in our conversations, and I know you've learned even more since then, a lot of outcome can depend on making some really quick assumptions at the ER about what stage somebody is at and what other conditions they might have, which maybe if they're brought in by a loved one, you may know. But if they're living by themselves or come in by themselves, you may not know. So what have we learned?
3: Well, we have certainly learned that if you're young and healthy without any other sort of diseases, you generally do well. But we've also learned that just being obese um, can be a significant risk factor. We've also learned that it can change very quickly. So you have to be on the lookout for those symptoms. Um, So if somebody's getting progressively short of breath, like uh, yesterday I could walk around the block 10 times, today I can do it once. That's a real concern. So we try and do this education of the patients. Look, you look like you're well enough to go home. Here are some of the things to look for. But we've also learned that people can have very severe, severe hypoxia, have you know very low levels of oxygen in their blood and look really good. And that's a real concern. So they come in, they say, I feel a little bit short of breath. We put them on this thing called a pulse oximeter, which shines a light into their finger and it bounces that light back and it tells us what percent you know oxygenation they have in their blood. And these can be extraordinarily low. They can be in the 70s and 60s, but the patient doesn't look very good. So we're very, very liberal with using pulse oximeters. And even in some cases, when we are sending patients home who might look good right now and their oxygen saturation is good, but they have a few comorbidities or are a little older, trying to get them one of these little devices to take home and say to them, "Um, I want you to check this a couple of times a day. And if it drops below, a lot of people are using 94%, then you should come back and we should check you out because most people's pulse oximeter should be above 95. Certainly, if once it drops below 90, that's pretty bad. Like 90 is not like an A in this case. 90 is a definite D. So we're learning how to use these pulse oximeters. We're learning how to sort of try and send people home that don't need to go, but we do it all um, quite anxiously because when people get sick, they can go from not looking too bad to very sick pretty quickly.
2: When you and I first talked, what seems like ages ago now, doctors were very interested in convalescent plasma as a possible life-saving treatment. Then it got mixed up in politics. Now I hear about it talked about in the same breath as hydroxychloroquine. In fact, another study came out on hydroxychloroquine this week showing it did not work better than a placebo. But taking all politics out of this, is convalescent plasma a treatment for this disease? Have we learned anything more about that?
3: We are still so early in this part of the therapy. So the problem with the politics is that everybody up the top was rushing to say, we've got a therapy, we've got a therapy. There's a few small studies that suggest that it might be helpful. it has been in the past. If we look at other diseases, it has been helpful. It is not a magic bullet, but it's potentially helpful. We just had another paper just came out recently, again, very small, that suggested that this can you know, reduce morbidity a little bit, uh, make people a little bit less sick. But in order to know how good it is, in whom to use it, when to use it, we need very big studies. Those studies are ongoing right now, but we won't have those results for a while. But convalescent plasma as well as monoclonal antibodies, which are not necessarily derived from somebody who's already been infected, which is what convalescent plasma is. You take a group of people who've had the disease, recovered from the disease, developed antibodies to the disease, and then you take their plasma and you give those antibodies to somebody who's sick. That's convalescent plasma. You can also do it in a more artificial way where you you make antibodies sort of in the test tube and give them to people. That's also promising. Um, But these things don't last very long. It's not like I give you convalescent plasma or a monoclonal antibody and you're good for the next 10 years. You might be good for three months, you might be good for six months, but then they go away because you're not making them yourselves. So they're a short-term therapy. We are hoping that they'll be useful in the sickest subset of patients. We're waiting for the studies to come out, but we don't know exactly when and in whom to use them or just how good it is. But we have hope. We just don't have much data right now.
2: That thing about short-term effect is one of the problems that appears is showing up with the Russian vaccine. Even the Russians who are saying, no, this is it. We've got it. We don't have to wait for phase three. We're going to give this to 10 million people now. Even they say this is a two-shot vaccine. And even they're saying, "Eh, maybe it lasts two years, Uh, which, look, is, is better than nothing. But we're still looking for something that's going to be good. It's not going to be like the flu vaccine where, you know, every year or a couple of years, you're going to have to go in and get shots all over again.
3: Yeah, the Russian vaccine, it's, you know, that is so going to be so careful about what they tell you. We don't really know. They're not really releasing the data. But for them to say that makes me think that it's much worse than that. Um, that they're seeing already that it's not lasting very long. It's usual with coronaviruses that you don't get lifelong immunity. Some things you get infected with and you're pretty good for the rest of your life. Your body remembers it and you can develop an antibody response and T cell response very quickly and kill this bug when it comes back. But coronaviruses are pretty notorious for um, not having lifelong immunity, immunity that might only last a year or two. So it is very likely that even if we have a good vaccine – You'll probably have to have two of them in the early studies in some of these early vaccines. You, most of them, you probably have to have one now and maybe one in a month for as a booster. And you'll probably have to have it yearly like the flu shot. So even if we get a good vaccine, you're probably going to have to have two shots. It depends on which manufacturer and you get. And it's unlikely that it'll last more than a year or two. It will start to wane. So this is probably a virus that's going to be part of our lives for many decades to come. It's going to become like flu. You're going to get a flu shot every year and you're going to get your COVID-19 shot every year after you get your initial probably two shots in most cases.
2: Just ahead, we'll have more with Dr. Mel Herbert on the battle against the COVID-19 virus and whether the flu season will make everything even worse. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking to the CEO of MRAP, which connects emergency room doctors around the world, Dr. Mel Herbert, on what we've been facing with the SARS CoV 2 virus. Now it's time to look ahead at flu season. One of the things we've been dreading is being hit by flu and COVID at the same time. So, what exactly are we about to be facing?
3: It can't be good. Uh, We don't know for sure, but um, the first and most important thing is get your flu shot. Now, the flu shot is nowhere near 100% effective, uh, but it can significantly reduce morbidity and mortality in patients. So you get your flu shot, absolutely, for everybody. Uh, That's the first and most important thing. Um, Australia tends to get the flu before us. And that's actually how we work out which vaccine to have in North America is because the Southern Hemisphere, they get usually the same sort of virus that we're about to get. And so we look at them, we look at how bad the flu season is, and we try and work out, okay, which vaccine we need to do this year. Australia, for example, this year had a pretty mild flu season. In fact, a very mild flu season. And a lot of people have said, well, so we don't have to worry about this convergence of COVID-19 and flu this year in North America. But we can't say that because what did Australia do really well? They wore masks, they did physical distancing, they were able to suppress COVID-19, which is a very infectious disease. And guess what happens when you do that? You also suppress the other viruses that are out in the community, one of them being flu. So we don't know what's going to happen in North America because we are not doing what Australia did very well, which is all of those public health things. So um, there's a lot of public health people who believe that um, the fall and the winter could be the worst part of this disease we've seen so far. We hope not. But the only way that's not going to happen is if the people at the top really can send the message, this is the time to really do the right thing, to wear the mask 95% of the time when you're out to try and avoid crowds. The other thing we've learned about this virus is that it's probably an indoor virus. When we're outside, when there's UV light, when there's wind and that reduces the concentration of the virus, um, that's sort of protective. But as people go back inside, as they use public transports, as they're in big buildings, as they're in schools, we're really concerned that those virus particles are able to float in the air now. We're still not exactly sure, but That seems to sort of explain why it blew up in places like New York and not so much in places like California. So we're really going to have to be on our game if we're going to get through this next sort of three to six months.
2: Okay, so let me wrap this up by going to the people that you talk to the most and that you, as an ER doctor yourself, have the most experience with. We're in a situation now where even if we get a vaccine, about 50% of Americans say they're not going to take it at least right away. Here's, here's the thing. For the doctors and nurses in the emergency departments around the country, that means even after we get a vaccine, they're going to have to be taking the precautions they are taking now. This, this really has no end for them for a long time to come.
3: Yeah, you're right. Um, And in fact, that's true of all of us. This is a multi um, sort of faceted approach to this thing. Even if we get a vaccine and it's 50% effective, which would be great. um, What does that mean? Does that mean I have 50% less symptoms? Does that mean I have 50% less mortality? Um, And so if I'm a little older, maybe you've reduced my mortality from 20% to 10%. That's still really high. Do I really want to go out and be out in the world I don't know. Uh, Same, like you say, for the doctors and nurses, that means this thing will still be circulating out there for months, many, many months. Um, They're going to have to continue to take precautions, but not just them, everybody else. Even people within the House of Medicine are very concerned about the messaging that we're getting. If we push this vaccine too fast, if we don't really analyze the data, if we don't study it in enough people, who's going to trust that we're telling them the truth, that this vaccine is indeed safe, it is indeed effective? So it's really important going forward, that we can trust the information we get, that we don't get ahead of this thing, that we listen to the public health experts and people who don't have financial interests in seeing this vaccine as a blockbuster. And that's where we are right now. It's a dangerous time because everybody is concerned that the this push to find a magic cure, particularly before November 3rd, has created a situation where we're not going to be able to trust the people we should be able to trust.
2: Well, as the scientist told us early in this, when we were asking, you know, who do we listen to? We're hearing so many conflicting things. And he said, listen to the scientists. Don't listen to the CEOs. The CEOs are are saying something's going to work because they're looking for investors. The the scientists are the people that you need to focus on. And I guess that's what we're going to have to take out of this for now.
3: Yeah, we really have to listen to those people who've been doing this for decades, Uh, public health experts, vaccine experts at universities. Um, There's a lot of people that can be trusted, that are smart and trustworthy, but be careful where you get your information. it's really just a, a ridiculous situation that we've found ourselves in, and we should also be looking internationally as well to places like the WHO, to public health services around the world, looking at experts that have no conflicts of interest, and what is sort of the what is the predominance of the evidence, the predominance of the expert opinion. That's what I'll be looking for. Bring it all together from the experts who don't have conflicts of interest.
2: There you have it. Dr. Mel Herbert is the uh, man behind MRAP, where ER doctors and nurses share information on everything that's going on right now that they're seeing in COVID-19. Mel, as always, I so appreciate your being with us.
3: Thank you so much for giving me the time to speak, and we'll speak again soon, I'm sure.
2: You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. There's an old joke in the NHL about the propensity for fisticuffs that there was a fight and suddenly a hockey game broke out. That could have described the first debate, which CNN reporter Dana Bash described right after it ended in such a concise and graphic way she's guaranteed meme existence for the rest of her days. But was it as much of a bleep show as it seemed? Here to talk about how American presidential debates might be changed forever is CBS News Chief Washington correspondent Major Garrett. Major, good to have you back. How are you? Great to be with you, Gil. You know, I grew up in a row house and there was a married couple, a couple doors down that would be screaming all the time until somebody called the police and somebody got a restraining order. And this kind of gave me flashbacks to that. (laughs) I I think there were a lot of
4: American households in which flashbacks were occurring, uh, almost none of them pleasant. You have to ask yourself, Okay, should debates go forward? Yes, they should. Why would you say that after observing what you observed? Because A, it's real. B, it is about one of the underlying issues of this campaign, which is the psychic satisfaction of the country with the Trump phenomenon. Because one of the things that Joe Biden has said is, I'll return the country to something that looks more normal. Well, that becomes an issue. And if abnormality is what you see on the debate stage, then that by definition elevates the question of, does the country want something that it feels is more normal? So- I'm not opposed to a debate that looks like that. I'm not opposed to a debate that leaves people feeling dissatisfied or depressed even about American democracy because the president is the president. And until he's not, we're part of that whole package. And in an election, you can't separate yourself from the package of the incumbent president, whatever it is that he or eventually she brings.
2: This is going to be a turnout election. Certainly, the GOP seemed to decide months ago, at least in the presidential race, there weren't that many undecided voters out there. So this would be a hundred percent about which party turned out the base better. To that degree, did the president do exactly what he intended to do? There is a cynical interpretation
4: that's precisely what the president was at least partially aiming at, because there is in the campaign theory of Donald Trump and those who work around him a very positive zero-sum game if people originally motivated who are not Trump supporters don't show up. Motivated Trump supporters possibly could
2: outnumber them. Well, in terms of discouraging some of those anti-Trump voters who may not be that strongly pro-Biden, the Bernie voters, the Warren voters and on, it was interesting that Trump seemed to try and push Biden into hurting his credibility with progressive voters. I don't know if this is going to hurt Biden, who may be, as we've talked about, getting as much of an anti-Trump vote as the pro-Biden vote, but it is a tactic to suppress support for Biden, you can see the strategy.
4: There was a couple of moments where, in the case of, are you in favor of enlarging the Supreme Court or getting rid of the filibuster, that the former vice president did a full-blown dodge. That's an area of separation, because some progressives are called for both. But the president never gave that any oxygen, never gave it any room. And also, Gil, I, this is the other thing I was struck by, is... I spent a lot of time listening to the Trump campaign about all matters, and I spent a lot of time particularly listening to them describe what this debate was going to be like. And they not only said, but they put hard dollar money on television ads saying, you know, Joe Biden can't handle it. His mental acuity is gone. All he does is read off a teleprompter. He can't handle the pressure or the duration or the requirements, intellectual and otherwise, of a debate. Well, if that's your premise, then why don't you be quiet and let people judge for themselves? By interrupting, he not only energized Biden, but he got in the way of any potential missteps, rhetorical or otherwise, the former vice president might have made. That left me very confused from a strategic point of view, because I always expect campaigns to do what they say is the mo- main thing they're trying to accomplish. And the president didn't do that.
2: If there are dodges, there were certainly dodges on both sides, Biden and then Kamala Harris in later interviews, dodging the question about packing the quarters, reporting the end of the filibuster. For Donald Trump, two of the ones that really stood out is Chris Wallace asked him specifically about a health plan to replace Obamacare, and Trump talked all around that. And then Trump refused to simply say he is against white supremacy. Even the next day, Careful to say when he was pressed, he would not support that, but you couldn't get the soundbite, I'm against white supremacy.
4: Right. No, you can't. And this has been a pattern since 2015 when he first entered the race. First of all, he suggests he doesn't know anything really about any of this stuff. And even when pressed by Chris Wallace, give me a name, tell me who you want me to denounce. Like it's a performative act that really doesn't have any true original intent on the president's part. He doesn't. And he's been given every opportunity to say, you know, on my behalf, on behalf of my supporters, on behalf of this country, I lead. Right-wing extremist violence is a real threat. I've read about it from my Department of Homeland Security. I've read about it from the FBI. I believe left-wing extremist violence is a
2: threat too. And I can give you chapter and verse on that, but both are wrong. Since you brought up Chris Wallace, I'm I'm not sure, frankly, for all the criticism he's getting, what he could have done, I think, as these debates go forward, and part of the premise of this program is, of course, how America changes forever. I think the only thing you can do is maybe have big timers set up and have the mics go off automatically so the moderator cannot be accused of, you know, shutting off one man's mic more than the other, which would inevitably happen if he had an on and off switch.
4: So I have a perspective on this. I've never moderated a general election presidential debate, but I've been a questioner in three Presidential debates at the primary level, Republican and Democratic. And it's a very difficult position to be in. And if candidates go out there with the intention of bulldozing you, trying to bulldoze their opponent and bulldozing the format, guess what? That's what they're going to do. Now, you can restrain them, but it takes a very fulsome effort. I thought Chris Wallace did the very best he could. I thought it was a Herculean effort. I felt great sympathy for him. Because of social distancing, he's actually farther physically away than he otherwise would be. The podiums are farther away, so you're kind of all three of you in a separate universe physically.
2: Final thing about debates going forward and even looking backwards. I remember talking to Howard K. Smith, who did the first of these with Nixon and Kennedy back in 1960 and then several more over the years. He bemoaned the fact that getting the candidates to say anything substantive was frustrating. And he did not have to deal with this World Wrestling Federation level of decorum that this one had. Debates seemed to swing on things like Reagan saying, there you go again. The Nixon-Kennedy debate went on about the fate of of too soon-to-be-utterly-forgotten islands, Kimoy and Matsu. And Nixon, in fact, admitted in his book, Six Crises, he lied in the debates about his plans for an invasion of Cuba, because Kennedy took a strong stand and he didn't want to seem like he was agreeing with Kennedy. So were these things ever that much for content? They're not for content, but they
4: are for, in the modern television era, something that is fundamentally important about our relationship to the American presidency, which is a sense of comfort and our willingness to to live within the false intimacy of the American presidency. Television and now social media makes the presidency, whether we want it to be or not, directly related toward the psychology of our lives. You can't avoid it. And that's certainly been true during the Trump presidency. If Vice President Biden is elected, he has promised to be a little bit less intrusive, certainly on social media and otherwise. But the presidency is all about us. And television was the first way to bring that sort of personality dimension of the presidency directly into our home. So it's not irrelevant. That's got to be part of the country's willingness to decide if that's what they want or that's not what they want. And ask George W. Bush about Al Gore. It was the Al Gore persona that I think was decisive in that race. The sighing, the trying to physically intimidate George W. Bush, those kinds of things sent signals. And in the end, They nudged George W. Bush into the presidency. I don't think that's possible without the debates. So these moments are clarifying, at least at a psychological, possibly sociological level. And that's the place we live. And until we get rid of either television or social media, and I don't think we're going to get rid of either, the debates are a way, a prism through which to interpret that dimension of a presidency and our relationship to it.
2: Major Garrett is the chief Washington correspondent for CBS News. And Major, let me let you give a plug for your excellent podcast here. Yes, I have two of them. One is called The Takeout and the other is called The
4: Debrief. The Takeout is a one interview, one one subject show, but The Debrief is a deep dive into one topic, lots of different voices, lots of different perspectives. I'm very proud of them both.
2: And you have every reason to be. Major, thank you so much for being with us again. Thank you. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Military flight training is expensive and dangerous. From 2013 to 2017, 133 service members died in aviation accidents. CBS Sunday Morning Correspondent Lee Cowan got an exclusive look inside the cockpit of training with augmented
5: reality. California's Edwards Air Force Base. It's a cathedral to aerospace history. Names like Jaeger and Armstrong come to mind. Anything that was cool, game changer, it happened here. The sound very And it still does, here. says Space Colonel Laz Gordon, vice commander of uh, still, the 412th cool Test Wing. Happened. And quickly you start seeing that. There's your sonic boom. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> a new one was coming. <laughs> Every day, jets shatter the skies here, training the best fighter pilots in the world dangerous, not to mention expensive. An F-22 Raptor, for example, costs about $40,000 for every hour it's in the air. Fighter pilots like Navy Lieutenant Travis Johnson say at the moment, though, that's still the best way to train. You don't want the answer for why you got shot down or why you lost that fight to be because I wasn't trained. I didn't know how to handle the situation. But in an era of shrinking budgets, pilot shortages, and burnout from endless wars, the Air Force was faced with a big problem. If we do not innovate, we're going to lose, period. And the stakes couldn't be higher.
0: We're faced with an opposition that has, you know, superior numbers, technology that's at least on par with ours. And if we're not scared of that, we should be.
5: What countries are we talking about? We're talking about China. Dan Robinson is a graduate of the UK fighter weapons school, the equivalent of the Navy's top gun. If it's got wings, he can fly virtual reality racing game that got his aerospace startup, Red 6, off the ground.
0: And I said, guys, can we do that in airplanes? The guys frankly looked at me as if I was crazy and said, uh, no, we can't do that.
5: <laughs> what would you think when he asked you that?
0: I, I immediately thought, who would be crazy enough to let us use their plane to do this? <laughs> and then Dan returned with me.
5: No sane pilot would fly blinded with a headset on projecting only virtual reality. Augmented reality would be the answer, allowing pilots to train against a virtual aircraft while still flying their real surroundings. But augmented reality doesn't work in the daylight, and it's not fast enough to keep up with a fighter jet.
0: Or is it? and The first time the tech crackled into life and we saw something in the sky, that's when we knew. And, uh, that, this and that, that this was possible. That this was possible. The question was,
5: could we do it in the air? We were familiar with the dream and the concept but we were always told that that was years and years away. And then we walk in and suddenly realize it's today. If all goes as planned, the Air Force hopes to have Red Six's augmented reality in the cockpit of a T-38 by early next year. That's fast, but not fast enough for a fighter pilot like Dan Robinson.
0: I am really grateful and stunned when I really reflect on what we've achieved, but I always want to go faster.
5: Supremacy isn't a race he plans to lose. For CBS this morning, I'm Lee Count, somewhere high over Southern California.
2: You've been listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by Paul Whitty Woodhall and District Productive. I'm Gil Gross.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to America Changed Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.